Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. The saying goes that those who tell the stories rule the world. And the best way to do this is through pictures. On that note, I connected with Jeff Desjardins, the founder and chief editor of Visual Capitalist. If you haven't seen the work of Visual Capitalist yet, it won't be long until you do. He's now doing work with some of the biggest names in finance and management consulting. The names include BlackRock, McKinsey, New York Life, and the one and only Tony Robbins. One of the main reasons why I asked Jeff to be a guest on the podcast is because I constantly see good companies struggle to present their message and materials in a compelling way. We're in an increasingly competitive media environment, so you need to stand out. In this episode, we talk about how the media industry works, how he measures success, and how habits of media consumption are a powerful tool in capturing mindshare. Now, I really like Jeff's company, but I also wanted to hear firsthand the sales pitch. If I was a CEO, why would I invest tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars into his program? I decided to ask those questions, but I'll leave it to you to decide. Enjoy this episode. Right now, I'm sitting uh, in a podcast studio in uh, in Worknicer. I want to make a good mention to Worknicer, but most interestingly, I'm sitting down with Jeff Desjardins, the founder and CEO of Visual Capitalist. This is actually a, a really well. It's a it's an, a, an exciting episode. It's nice to be sitting in front of you. Thanks for having me, and thanks for supplying the beer. <laughs> hey, man! Cheers! Cheers! Yeah, nice to see you, Jeff. The Insider's Guide to Finance is about helping CEOs, their management teams, and anyone in the space, helping them finance their companies better. And over the last seven years, you came into the to the scene with this company, Visual Capitalist, and have built up an incredible network there. Uh, well, a network of, or an audience, excuse me, who uh, loves the content you put forward, and it's, it's heavily investor-facing. It's visual, it's powerful, and a lot of public companies work with you now. So, why don't you give us a, an elevator pitch about uh, about yourself and Visual Capitalist, and we'll get into it. Sure. Thanks, Corey. So Visual Capitalist is all about taking a real complex world and finding ways to simplify it with visual content. So we do that with infographics, data visualizations, charts, anything that's visual that you can look at and wrap your head around an issue better. And so the reason why this is important for investors and why I think investors are drawn to Visual Capitalist is because... You know, investors have a really, you know, they have to understand what's going on in the world. They have to have a worldview that allows them to make decisions that are smart for their portfolios, smart for their families. And they're looking around the world and they're saying, holy crap, there's lots of stuff going on. It's hard to keep track of everything. There's so much information out there. There's many different sources. And how do I look at this world and get a 
you know, more distilled picture of what's happening. And what we can do with the visual content that we create is we can look at global trends, we can look at industries, we can look at new uh, companies, and we can show their the trend and how that's going to affect investors, how that's going to uh, impact the market. And uh, it really makes it easier to understand these complex issues around investing. Uh, one of the things I like about it, and I've seen you do is you'll take, for example, a complex company or somebody who's got a complex narrative, a complex story, and visualize it. And you put it into uh, the equivalent of a PDF, but it draws somebody through that story and leaves an, like, a hell of an impact. Yeah, so that's, to me, it's all about how can you take a complex story and make it as easy to go through as possible, something that you can just, without using any mental effort, scroll through and understand what's going on. And we can use visual cues, we can use uh, different editorial and narrative techniques to make it so that we can flow through a company's story from top to bottom in a way that uh, almost anybody can understand what's going on. And this is really important, especially when you're dealing with uh, companies that have complex stories. I mean, if you're trying to explain what's going on in the world of artificial intelligence and how you fit into that picture, or if you're trying to tell a complicated exploration story in the mining sector, this stuff isn't easy. And there's a reason why people that have spent 10 or 20 years in the business, even they struggle sometimes to tell their company's story in the best possible way. Hmm. You know, you know that's, that's something that it strikes a chord for me because when I think about mining companies, especially with gold right now, you're seeing a lot, of, uh, a lot more interest in the space. But I couldn't tell you the first thing about a geological report as an investor. If I was looking at a company, I can't, I can't tell you what those ratios mean or what their measurements of the industry are. But I've seen some of the work you do where all of a sudden you visualize that and you go, oh, I get it. It gives it context. Right. So that's one of the most powerful elements of the visual um, storytelling is that we can take something that is contextual within the market. So, for example, the average gold per ton in a discovery throughout the world, we can compare that to what a company has in their um, through their drill holes and through their uh, ex exploration story. So we can use these kind of things as visual cues that you can look at and simply understand it right away without having to actually read through paragraphs and paragraphs of information to get the same information. So basically, it's just a way of, they say that a picture is a thousand words. What we do is we use that to its most effectiveness when we're trying to tell companies stories. And when we're trying to talk about industries and trends in general, uh, we just are able to capture what's going on in something that you can just look at and intuitively say, oh, I see what's happening here, rather than having to skim through a thousand words or two thousand words and try and get the story. What, what I really want to get into, or partially in a, in a conversation here for the audience, when they're speaking to investors or they're speaking to the market, you'll take these complex things and, and, and simplify them down into visual images. I'd love to get into some of those, those tips and tricks, the work you guys do to help your clients speak to the market, speak to investors and so on. But before that, I mean, to frame up the, the conversation, Visual Capitalist, is, it's a media company. And I mean, that in itself can be a misunderstood business, business model. Can you give us some context there? And then also, I mean, I understand it as a big number, the amount of daily active readers you have, but frame that up for us so we can understand what it is a media company and then what that audience means. Sure. So there's basically two sides to uh, being a media company. 
On the one side, we have our audience, and those are the people that visit us every day. They're the people that are on our daily email list, all these different things. They are coming to our website to get insight about the world and to understand the different trends, whether it's technology, macro market trends, or even new developments within uh, different niches of sectors themselves. They're going here to understand this so that they can make better investment decisions, that they can plan out their career, their life in the future. So that's what they're coming there for. They're trying to get that insight about what's going on in the world. So that's the audience constituency. On the other end, we have the advertiser constituency. So the advertisers are the companies that we work with. They typically are companies that want to get in front of that audience of investors and professionals and people like that. And so they are trying to leverage the storytelling that we're doing with our audience, but for themselves. Um, and so we can run uh, native ads, we can run sponsorships and different things like that to get them in front of our strategic audience. In total, our audience is about, on, on a monthly basis, we have about 1.5, 1.6 million people coming to the site. And then on our daily email list, we have about 120,000 subscribers right now. Uh, they get our email blast each day and uh, in terms of industry metrics for yeah, people yeah, cl clicking through, I'll, I'll get into the. We're on a podcast. We can't we can't visualize this, but give us some context there. What do those numbers mean? Sure. Yeah. So when you look at bigger media companies in the world, when you're talking about something like a Forbes or something like that, they tend to be in the upwards of 50 million uh, visitors a month. So they're huge, obviously. Uh, we don't compare to that size. But when you look at you know, the small cap public company space in uh, Canada or the US, in these places, the types of media that talk about trends within finance and, and within that space, it's a much smaller uh, pond, obviously, and, and we're a much bigger fish. So when you look at someone like uh, Stockhouse, they would have comparable numbers to us in terms of uh, active monthly users. And then there's a bunch of other sites that are out there that w wouldn't crack a million and they might not even crack 500,000, but they're names and people that you would know within the space that are actively you know, targeting the same types of clients that we are often. Now, did you ever picture this coming down? I mean, when you started Visual Capitalist, what was that like? And did you picture it being what it is today? We did not picture it being what it is today. <laughs> and the main reason for that is because initially we thought we were consulting, essentially. We, we were talking to companies and we were taking things like their, um, their news releases and saying, how can we visualize this to make it more interesting, to increase your organic impact that you have when you publish a news release? And we started doing that and you know, it wasn't really working for various reasons. We started instead visualizing companies as a whole. So like, here's the big picture story behind a company. And then we eventually got into doing more industry trends. But over the course of doing that, we basically had a portfolio page. And some people, especially those that live in Vancouver, will remember this. Back in 2012, 2013, when we were just starting. And, you know, we, we started getting our work linked to by really big publications. And they, I remember the first time I was actually in Calgary in an airport, and I remember the site crashed because uh, Zero Hedge, which is one of the big oh, wow. sort of finance blogs, linked to something. And we had you know thousands of users on the site in real time, and my whole website just crashed. And I'm like trying to repair it before I got onto a flight to, you know, I think it's only a one hour flight or something like that, but I'm like, oh no, um, how do I do this? And so obviously our uh, system is a lot more professional now, but... At that time, we weren't expecting that traffic. We weren't expecting to be a media site. It just so happened that 
we discovered that people really enjoyed the content and different uh, media sites, bigger media sites, wanted to link to it and use it. And that's how we've basically built up our base over time. Hmm. It's, it's awesome, man. It's a great startup story. I mean, you've got a, you've got a really, really interesting business here. When you look at the state of media and when you think about companies trying to speak to, to an investing audience or, or any audience at that matter, it's like we're so cluttered, um, but you guys have taken a different approach. So what's your feel on media? So when you're looking at the state of media and uh, when you're looking at it in the context of you know, public companies or, um, or other entities that want to get in front of a strategic audience, I mean, there's a few markers that I think are, are really interesting and characterize the space right now. So the first one that you mentioned, um, even in your description, is a cluttered media space. So I think this is sort of the most important of all of the factors because it really leads to many of the other factors. When you open your email or when you open one of your social feeds, there's basically unlimited content there. So, you know, I, speaking for myself, I'm getting hundreds of emails a day and there's no way I can click on all of them. I'm trying to look at them and figure out, okay, which of these is strategic? Which of these is the highest priority? Which of these are interesting and are going to give me insights that I can apply to my life and I can apply to my career? I'm looking at them in that way. And it's the same thing with social feeds. But the, the thing is, is that the the barrier to entry for creating content is so low that there's so much content out there, which is why you have this clutter. You have everybody and their dog has a blog. Everybody and their dog you know, is um, creating uh, their own user-generated content, even through uh, Facebook and, and social media. And so you have all of this stuff everywhere, and you don't actually, it's really hard to find the good stuff, which is surprising. You think that there'd be mechanisms for it, but a lot of times social media networks are promoting uh, whatever is the most viral thing that gets them the most uh, time on page and things like that. So there's all these weird mechanisms. So that's kind of the starting problem. And I, I think it's all about, you know, how do you stand out from that clutter? How, how do you differentiate yourself from all of the other stuff that's out there? And that's what I think is the most interesting about, uh, about the visual stuff, which is that you can actually not only can you attract that initial attention by standing out on one of these feeds or standing out uh, in an email blast or something like that, but you can also hold people's attention. And if you do it right, you can also give them that insight at the end of the day that's going to make them want to come back and, or that will make them trust you as a source for things to come. Also in the media environment, another factor that I think is quite interesting is that you have in, in social media, there's. Uh, have you ever seen the video of the chimp that's scrolling through an iPhone? No. Okay. Well, it might be something you can link to in the show notes or something like that. But there's this uh, this video that was going um, around for the last uh, little while, and there's a chimp that's literally holding an iPhone, scrolling through and picking on things to look at, and it looks exactly like you and me looking <laughs> at our phones, and it's kind of alarming because I'm like. You know, this is exactly how we think about this, too. It's not just a chimp thing. It's how we think about this. And so it's funny, when you're looking through uh, your feeds or when you're looking through your email, there's no actual higher level thinking process going on. What you're really doing is you're using your subconscious mind to choose the things that stands out to it, right? And that's inevitably why cat videos and things like that do so well. People will see it and be like, oh, I got to click on that even before you even think about it. Your rational mind doesn't even have a chance to say, hey, 
I think this article on uh, quantum computing is super interesting because it's your, your uh, uh, subconscious mind that's taking control, right? It wants to go to the flashy, the colorful, the interesting, the, uh, the things that capture its attention, right? Basically the shiny objects that are out there. So this is another kind of issue, right? Because you can create really quality content, but if you can't stand out and get past that uh, subconscious mind, then nobody's going to click on it to go and view it, uh, which is definitely problematic. Uh, there's so many places we can go here, but let's talk about reaction or, or the, the, the habits of an audience. You say you start to get, like we, we get cluttered with stuff. We get so much stuff, but then you can start to get into almost a routine of, of clicking on things. I think this is an important subject because there's something there for the companies that we're speaking to here in the sense that how can they help people find that routine of engaging with their content or engaging with your content? Right. So this is super important, which is essentially that if you talk to any investor or if you talk to any person that's involved with um, business news or, or trying to figure out what's going on in the world, they're going to tell you you know, one or two trusted sources that they rely on daily to do to get their information from, right? You know, somebody might say, oh, I go to CNN every day to look at, you know, XYZ, or um, I use this particular source to learn more about this kind of investment or, or what have you, right? So people have uh, developed these habits over time. And this isn't by chance. This is, this is essentially a shortcut um, that they use to find the best possible information with the least possible effort, right? So, you know, it, people have limited time. They have limited mental capacity to process all of the things that get sent to them. And so if you had to look at each single thing and vet it and be like, okay, is this is this a real piece of content? Is this fake news? Is this from a trusted source? Is this from an academic study? If you're trying to literally spend all of your time trying to figure out if a content is valid, that's a huge waste of time. And you could be leveraging your time much more efficiently, right? So basically what people that have this kind of habit have figured out is that this is a source I trust. This is a source that I'm going to go to for all my information on the subject. And as a result, the reason why it's relevant to companies is that, A, they, over, over time, for their shareholders or potential shareholders, they need to be that source of information to them about what's going on in that industry or company via thought leadership or about the information that's coming about their company, so news releases and things like that. And B, if they are leveraging third-party sources to help get them in front of an audience, you need to figure out what sources are going to get you in front of the right audience and how they're going to do it. And does that audience actually trust that source at yeah, the end of the day? credibility, right? Right. So there's different, especially in the um, smaller cap public market space, there are some questionable sources that are out there that I think, yeah, maybe they have some visibility, but a lot of them might not be doing the fact-checking necessary. They might not be um, doing the sort of media and journalism work that's needed to be a real trusted source. So it's really important if you're an end investor to be able to rely on uh, on a media property to, to do all the work for you so that you don't have to do all that mental work, figuring out if something is real or not. I gotcha, yeah. You know, I want to go back to point A because there's something there about you know, you talk about thought leadership, and I think education before solicitation builds trust. And that's actually what I see, you know, some of the work and how you do it, or well, and if anybody's to do it, putting forward content that's that's educational, but then you guys do a ne next level, which is, I think, the it's so important given the amount of clutter in the media is 
you visualize the hell out of it. And that's where, where I start to see, or, you know, I see that value. So can we talk about the science of it? I mean, there's a reason why we gravitate towards images versus words. And you've leveraged that. So what's, what's the background there? So there's a lot of places to start here. I think the most obvious place to start is when you look back in human history, I mean, the first stories were told by hieroglyphics, essentially, right? You have cave art and things like that, ancient Egyptians, and, and everything that they put together is essentially their visuals, right? They're not written languages in the way that we think of them and that we have these abstract letters that are representing words and those words represent ideas or, or whatever. They're literally showing what's going on in the cave art wall or they're literally showing what's going on through hieroglyphics. Well, it's, it, you know, it's something like if I was to say the word apple to you, you're not thinking of black and white, A-P-P-L-E. Right, you're exactly. Thinking of something. You're thinking of the object. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I, I think that this is a very uh, basic part of human nature. It's something that's existed throughout the history and through our culture, uh, which is just that, you know, we are visual creatures. 65% of humans learn better through visuals than through either audio or, or doing other things. So visuals are a key component to not only history but also culture and how we've evolved and so we you know we just are able to process visuals better we're able to understand what's going on in a visual scene much faster than we are able to if you're writing that information out and i'm i'm talking like multitudes faster right um and i do think that the the old phrase which is that a picture is worth a thousand words i think it's cliched, but it's it's really relevant to this subject matter, right? If done well, visuals really can bring home an entire idea or connect two ideas together that you never thought possible if it's done strategically and if it's done intuitively. And, and like we, we think of it like you have to just look at something and get it. If you don't look at it and get it, we've done it wrong. Hmm. And when you think of that in comparison to other ways of communicating, whether it's... Um, you know, writing a long-form blog post or a news article or something like that, it's really hard to find the pertinent information. It's really hard to get those insights. So scientifically, visuals from that perspective are, are far superior. The problem is, is that executing on them isn't always easy. Yeah. So if I'm, if I'm a company, I'm a CEO, and I'm looking at visualizing some of the content, how do I go to my my team, my designers, my my VP of finance, whoever it may be, and saying, "Listen, we really got to visualize this." There's got to be some tips and tricks, or the ways you approach it at Visual Capitalist that that make it easier. What's the formula? <laughs> well, without giving the formula, how do you guys do it, and how can you help others do it? So interestingly, there is no formula. There are a few tips and tricks that we do apply in different situations when they come up, obviously. But I think the best shortcut to doing this kind of stuff successfully is basically you just have to think about it from the context of someone who knows nothing about your industry, nothing about your space. You have to get rid of the illusion that people know anything about you at all. You know, you have to think outside the box and think from that 10,000 foot view. If you're someone that's, if you're an investor and you're looking at a company, you know, you have to put forth the context uh, of the company. What is the industry you're in? What What are the things that are uh, propelling companies in that space? Um, what is the tide that's floating all boats, basically? And then you have to figure out, okay, how does my company fit within that? 
Now, you have to get rid of the conception that people know what, you, what you're doing and what you mean, because the reality is, is that all these companies that have new technologies, any uh, you know, cannabis company that's fulfilling a very like specific niche, any mining company that has a project, you know, they, the reality is, is that most people and most investors don't actually know in depth much about these industries. That's why you have all these things like newsletter writers and other media that try and explain what's going on. And, and so if you're a company and you're trying to communicate this, you have to really go back to square one and think, how can I um, explain this idea in simplest terms? And so, sorry to stop you there. Yeah, I just sure. Want to point something up. I mean, you make a good point, and I've seen you know a lot of these news writers. They approach their letters in the way of they set the context. What's the stage? They set the you know the the macro industries here. These are the factors that are playing in. This is important. Given this X Y Z factor, this company here is is in a perfect position. And so, yeah, what I'm hearing you saying is this is about about setting the stage from a from a providing that context at a almost a macro level and then you bring it in and start to introduce that differentiating factor of a company. Yeah, so here's the problem is that all of these companies know all of that context and that's why they're in their space to begin with. The challenge is that they've probably been doing this thing for 5 years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever they forget about the context because it's second nature to them. They've been doing this thing for so long that in uh, the field of psychology, it, it's basically a problem where because you've known something and you, you know that space so well that you basically assume that other people also know about it as well. It's just an intrinsic thing that happens where you think that everybody knows the same information that you do. And, and it's very natural. It happens to everybody. But you really have to get outside that. And if you're a company, you have to assume that people know very little about the space, and you can't take that for granted. So let's bring it bring it back to understanding that you got to start with context. You got to set a macro view and then build down. What are some of the things you guys do to to help create visual content that that takes words and puts them into images? So first of all, you have to have good data. I think that's the the key part of of what we do is we're we're really finding the data that's going to be the most relevant and it's going to be the easiest to portray in a way that's going to capture someone's imagination. A lot of people have the misconception that visual content is about more qualitative things. It's more about cartoons or you know showing pictures of things. From our perspective, everything has to be data-driven, and we find that to be really powerful. If you use it from a quality source, and if you use data that uh, will essentially tell the story for you, then visualizing it actually becomes a lot easier because the data tells the story for you. You don't have to do a lot beyond it. And what we're always trying to do is we're trying to figure out what is that visualization that someone looks at and says, oh, that's how fast the industry is growing? Or, oh... This whole market is untapped because of whatever factor. We're really trying to look at it to give that insight. And that's what it's all about is like, can your can the visual that you come up with generate that insight? And part of that's design, part of that is choosing the right data, and part of it is knowing how things fit together and, and understanding the audience that you're trying to uh, make something for. What I'm hearing there is, I mean, that's also tying in that investor narrative. If I'm going to be visualizing anything, it's got to be aligned with our investor narrative. But finding those, what I've called nuggets of gold, and using that data to play. So that brings up another question. 
with the work you guys do and given the state of media, where do you find trusted sources of data? Yeah, that's a great question. It's funny because I've seen a lot of other media, like mainstream media, like big companies, uh, really stray on what they use for their sources sometimes, or they misconstrue data in ways that we find uh, kind of to be an abomination, where we're like, oh, if we had that data set, we would never have put that in the headline. That, that, that seems crazy, right? So for us, I mean, we're kind of lucky in that we're focused on uh, we're focused on business and investing. So within that space, I think there's a lot of sources that most people can agree on are are pretty good. So when you're looking at data from, for example, uh, maybe the Federal Reserve or for, I'm just thinking Federal Reserve. Not everybody loves the Federal Reserve, but <laughs> but the Federal Reserve government sources, the Bureau of Labor Statistics in the states, for example. When you're looking at big international sources, so World Bank, IMF, uh, groups like that, United Nations. Those are all pretty trusted amongst all sources of media. Then you get into beyond that sort of tier of sources, you get into sort of the reports that are done year after year and that are pretty trusted. So, so like I'm thinking like a Foresters or a um, who else would be out there? What kind of reports are you talking there? So like an, an example of that would be, are you familiar with the hype cycle that Gardner puts out every year? It's, it's like the the like bell curve of that goes um, all the way up into showing what in, what technologies are the most hyped, and then they go down into the uh, sort of like trough of disillusionment, and then they go okay. up to the plateau of productivity. Um, so, so a report like that has been going out every single year for the last probably thirty years, maybe more. And so they have a, a reputation around it. They have a methodology around it. It's not something that they just like came up with right now and that isn't trusted. So we're looking for, for sources like that. Another example of that would be something like Credit Suisse puts out a wealth report every year. And the wealth report basically you know, shows how many millionaires, how many billionaires are out there, where they're distributed within the world, all these different things. So something like that is a, a reputable report that gets put out every year. The information is, you know, pretty solid, and they have a very good methodology for it. Um, so that would be sort of the second tier of information. Another tier that's similar to that in terms of quality would be all of the big uh, companies like uh, McKinsey or Accenture or some of these consulting groups. They do a lot of, they put a lot of time and money into their insights and things like that. And a lot of these are publicly available as well. And uh, because they're basically trying to use this information to attract their own clients uh, through their thought leadership. And so a lot of these companies put together really good research as well. Um, we work with uh, McKinsey and Company, and we see the work that goes into some of the things that we do with them. And it's unbelievable. They mm. have economists all around the world, PhDs, all these people that we don't have as our internal resources, that's for sure. But we know that we can trust them on you know certain types of information. Hmm. Um, and so for that reason, it's easy for us to say, oh, okay, yeah, this is from McKinsey. Yeah, it's good to go and, and we can put it in. We'll still look through the methodology. We'll still look at it, obviously. But uh, most of those sources are, are very trusted as well. Interesting, the kind of the tiers or the, the, the buckets you look at first. And it's it's no wonder that you make no mention of any news outlets or whatever, <laughs> or any letter writers of the sort or anything like that. Well, one interesting thing there as well is that most media that put out information, uh, so let's say you see something and you're like, oh, okay, uh, CNBC says, you know, 63% of, you know, whatever. If you go into that, they will be linking to a source uh, for that information. They didn't, most likely they didn't, 
get that information themselves. They got it from somewhere else. And you can actually do that. We our content people do this all the time, which is we kind of call it like a, it's kind of like going down the rabbit hole, right? Which is like, okay, CNBC says this, you click on their source. Now you're on some other page. You click on their source and you basically try and get to the root of where did that information originally come from, right? Mm. Sometimes you'll be pleasantly surprised. Other times you'll be aghast. But for us, that's kind of how we think of it. So we don't think if we see something on CNBC, we're thinking, okay, maybe this is a good source, but we got to get down to the sort of bottom of where they got it from. And then we can decide. Uh, But usually it's not a media company themselves that has done the research. They're they're just reporting what they saw from somewhere else. Right. And and adding their spin and so on. Exactly. You know, somebody, I don't know where this quote comes, but somebody said to me once that if you want the truth, follow the money. Interesting enough, right? I think that's, I, I use that as a bit of a way to uh, weigh through the, the, you know, quote unquote facts that I see at times. Yeah, which is basically that people are essentially talking their books as well, right? So you can, you can see where Goldman Sachs is putting their money. You can see where, you know, different investment banks or, or different funds, or you can see what they're doing, basically, what they're betting on. And that definitely helps cut through that clutter a little bit. Because there's so many different uh, sources saying, you know, do this, do that. And uh, once you look at what people are actually doing, that definitely has some truth to it. Now, I want to ask you questions as if I were in the position of CEO. Because when, if I was to engage a visual capitalist, you charge a pretty penny for your service. But there's a reason for that. But walk us through what that means. Walk us through the... You know, what are we getting out of an engagement with you? So I like to think of it in terms of two major components. On the first side, you have access to our audience. So if you're a public company or if you have, uh, uh, if you're trying to get an ETF um, out to investors or something like that, you don't have your own audience built up through your mailing list, most likely, or you have a small one, if you were to send out an email blast, or if you're to send out content to them, or if you're to publish stuff in your own social feeds, things like that, it's not going to move the needle for you in terms of uh, reaching more people, right? So you need to, the first component is you need to have access to a strategic audience that is interested in what you could potentially be providing. Um, and in this case, in this context, we're talking about an investment opportunity, and trying to explain the merits of a particular one. So that's the that's sort of factor one. Factor two is you need to be able to tell your story to that audience in the most effective possible way. You need to not only have them engage with it and have them understand what's going on, um, but you also need to show educate them about that context, educate them what's going on in the industry, and then you need to also eventually get in your value proposition in there and explain why this company or opportunity is of particular interest. So either of those two things, I think you can do a pretty good job of separately. You can access audience of um, other publications out there. That's great. And on the visual side, I, I think that companies can create their own materials quite well. And I think that there's lots of great you know, design people out there, a lot of great other agencies and things like that, that you could do stuff with to create quality content. The question is, how do you marry those two things together? Because at some point you need to marry them together, which is you need to get the right content in front of the right people, which we can do at scale. So it's not only about 
making a video and publishing it in your YouTube feed where you have 103 subscribers. <laughs> it's about how do you reach 120,000 people on a mailing list where all these people are either investors or they're strategic people. Like we have people like uh, Mark Andreessen, uh, Michael Dell, a lot of like billionaires like Steve Case. All these people are follow us on Twitter, for example, and we can see that through the verified followers. Like if you want access to those kind of people, like you can't do it from your own list, right? Yeah. And so yeah, it's about marrying these two ideas together. And I, I think that we also have a track record in being able to tell company stories and also to uh, help those stories evolve over time and and make adjustments where we can uh, make them reach even more people and even more effectively. So. I mean, telling the story, it doesn't happen with one infographic. It doesn't want to happen with one, one visualization. There's more to it. So what's that engagement look like with you guys? Yeah, so what we set up is, first of all, we set up basically a home base. So we call that a company spotlight. It's a native advertisement that runs perpetually on the site, and it gets advertised through our email blast. It gets advertised through different display ads that we have. Basically, we find all ways all kinds of ways to direct traffic to it. The company spotlight, essentially, its job is to convey a company or funds their message and their story and to simplify it down into the easiest terms so that you can look at it and really understand what they're about and what the opportunity is. And we, we just, I just, I want to frame this up or what I'm picturing. So perhaps others, uh, they're either getting it the way I am or not. But what I'm picturing is we're talking from a marketing standpoint, top of funnel kind of awareness, uh, like an awareness level spotlight to bring awareness to the company. And then, then you work your way down to the consideration and then ultimately the conversion stage is, is somebody who's buying stock. And I mean, in our industry, we can't really, you can't quantify the person buying stock when they come down that funnel, that marketing funnel, but that's the way I'm seeing this. Is that correct? Am, am I framing that up right? Yeah, so within your framework, it, it could be the beginning of the funnel because it could be the first time someone's learning about a particular company. Um, within our framework, it's actually, from what we provide it, it's basically the end of the funnel because all of the other work that we'll create around it will be about to create context in that industry or thought leadership in that industry. And the company spotlight is the home base. The job of that is it's, it's your profile that says, okay, this is our company, this is what we're about, this is the investment opportunity, here's where you can opt in to get more information, that kind of thing. And you can, I got you. You can okay. convert someone into becoming a, to learning more basically. So that's your point of conversion. Right, exactly. Oh, I got gotcha. you, oh, I got gotcha. you, okay. But within other people's context, I can see how that might be more of an entry point because it might be the first time that you learn about a company. But within our framework, it's, it's what we base everything else around. That's kind of the anchor of the entire thing. And that's also because it's the most specific thing. It's not going to go viral or anything like that. So we need to drive people to it. Okay. And oftentimes when I've worked with companies in the past and we're putting together investor narratives, the whole world of coming down to your tone, your voice, how you want to speak to people, the visual, the brand identity. I would imagine that that, that home base, as you call it, that spotlight of the company is where you guys go through that you know, the heavy lifting of getting to know each other. Totally. So if the company has a, uh, like a style guide or a branding guide, that's where we're diving into that and, and making sure everything is on point. Um, that's also where we're going to be looking at all of their current investor materials. So any decks or any other communication materials that they have, including their website, 
and how they currently portray themselves and how they currently portray their messaging. And we're going to use that to either, either they've done a good job of that and we're just like, hey, we'll take that and we'll just add in our component around it. Or sometimes, you know, companies have struggled with that in the past and we'll essentially be an outside consulting service that says, yeah, we think if you switch this around here and we think if you actually started with this and whatever, that this would be a better way to um, convert people and, and get people interested in your company. So depending on the company that we're working with, we're, we're basically trying to maximize the usage out of that thing because if you if you don't get that value proposition right in the, on that page, which is the anchor, it's, gonna, it's not going to be as effective as it could be. Okay. So we've got our home base then. We've got our the profile of the company. And that's what you're saying you're going to bring bring that audience to. But uh, it's I'm seeing it's not, you don't bring that audience immediately. There's other avenues or other ways to, to start to work them into that. What's, so what's the next step? What's it look like? Right. So here's, this is what's interesting. And this is the fun part. Because anybody can create a profile for a company and try and use like paid ads to drive people to it or something like that, right? But the problem is, is that People are coming to this page and you only have, a, well, you really only have about 10 seconds to say why this matters or whatever and, and why you should be paying attention here, why you shouldn't be uh, going somewhere else and doing something else with your time. So what we're doing with all of our other work is we're getting it out to our audience and we're either creating information around industry trends that relate back to that company or we're um, using that company's expertise in thought leadership. And so, you know, we've worked with a bunch of different companies to say, oh, you know, you're an expert that's been in this field for this long and you have all these great ideas about how the way that this technology works or something. Let's take that and let's get that to the market. Let's let other people, let's let people understand those trends and, and see what's actually going on in the market. And so if you can associate your company with these other insights, um, then that's a better way to get people acquainted with your company and to get them trusting that your company might actually be of interest in their investment decision process. I mean, you have to remember that, you know, when you're buying a car, you don't buy a car on the very first ad that you see for a car, right? You have to develop purchasing intent. And purchasing intent is a very complicated thing that takes time to build. You have to start thinking, okay, well, do I want an SUV? Do I want a truck? Do I want a sedan? Uh, do I want an electric car? Do I want a traditional gas-powered car, all these different factors, right? You have to think about these factors and there's different sources and media and information out there that's going to influence those factors. And then over time, eventually you're going to say, okay, I want either a Chevy or a Chevy truck or I want a um, Dodge Ram truck. And you're, now you've narrowed it down to the exact type of thing that you want and the exact model and then and then you're going to eventually make your decision, right? You're, there's, and there's a bunch of stuff that goes in there, right? And prices come into play and all these things. Um, so it's a very complicated thing. It's not all about just showing people your company. It's about all these other things that you have to convince them of. You don't just have to convince them that your company is valuable. You have to convince them that the industry is valuable, that you're having the right trends work in your favor, that you that your stock has value, that it's going to go somewhere, that it's going to be a good long-term play. All these things are, are aspects that people are thinking about. Again, I'm coming back to education is the only way that I picture it. So when when we hear this, there's two avenues I want to go here. But I'm going to, I'm going to start with the first being, if, if I write you a check for, for the work you do 
and access to that audience and, and access to the design talent you have. Uh, how many how many pieces of of content? How many visual assets am I going to get out of this? And and what other pieces beyond the the visual assets do I get? So if you think of it that way, we're normally thinking in terms of one year campaigns. So think of it as um, a company spotlight that's going to be a base for a year. That's going to be the home base. We're going to be running. Um, ads and all of our email blasts. We're going to be um, showcasing it on the site through display ads. We're going to be trying to drive traffic to that home base. And then there's going to be a bunch of other touch points that we're going to use as well. So we narrow those touch points into a few different categories depending on the company. But generally speaking, they are either sort of thought leadership oriented. So talking about the using the company's expertise within an industry to help explain what's going on there. They're either, they might be native ads that uh, are more covering more niche aspects of a space. They might be editorial features that are covering the more big picture ideas within an industry that a company can sponsor and use that as a touch point to get their logo and their brand in front of people. So there's a bunch of different ways to do that. And, and that's sort of our main other element of doing that. So in a normal campaign, we might do somewhere between four and eight different pieces throughout the course of the year that maybe one per quarter or two per quarter. And those are just creating other touch points so that people are seeing and learning about that industry and getting connected with that company. Meanwhile, on the site, there people are constantly seeing that company come up through all the other ads and through the email placements and things like that. So over time, you become more aware of that company. You become aware of what they do because you've seen them in all these different places. And hopefully over time, you're clicking on that company spotlight profile and either becoming a lead, but getting people to that stage where they're mm -hmm. deciding and looking at it and actually thinking about it. They have the education to know enough about the industry. They know about the trends that are affecting that space because they've seen it through all of our other content. And they're they're actually making that decision and thinking about it. You know something here that that it's just, it's an interesting, man. I mean, everything you guys do, and I think this is why you've built up this audience, it's all shareable. Shareable in a way it's like, I picture this and I and I and I talk to people and I say, like, when you're talking about a stock and you're talking about retail investors, they want to have something that they're able to hang their hat on while having beers with buddies or at a cocktail party. They want to say, no, you gotta look at this company. And then all of a sudden this visual capitalist stuff is incredibly shareable. Let me send you this thing. It's an interesting one that I think that oftentimes we undervalue undervalue that kind of giving somebody the ability to speak for it uh, by themselves and then follow it up with a really interesting, credible piece of information. And so I see a bit of the value there and a bit, a lot of the value of what you're doing. Yeah. The shareable element is what we've basically built our audience and distribution on, which is that we see people sharing our content with other people all the time, not only through social media, but through passing it through email and things like that. And it's just, I, again, it goes back to how confident are you that when something ends up in your inbox, that this is something that you want to look at and click on. If it's a 2000 word article, hey, you should read this article. Most people will look at it and be like, mm, yeah, I kind of yeah, got some other no. things going on, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's like, hey, actually, you can learn all about this really interesting technology in like three minutes. That's a pretty great value proposition if you're a person that's curious about the world and you want to learn about something. Um, you know, if we've done our job properly and we can communicate that in a few minutes, 
then it creates value for people because they can actually go and do this thing. They can, they can look and learn about this very quickly and without actually using any mental effort to process all the information. That's the challenge is that mental effort is, um, is limited in a, in a world where there's so much content. And if you have to look at something and you're using all this mental effort to try and figure out what's going on, you're going to be like, yeah, I'm going to close this and I'm and I have Google and I'm going to look up that same thing and find a better article that explains the same thing, right? Right. So our goal is to make it as effortless as possible so that you have the visual cues, you have everything to just go and learn what you want to learn and by the end of it you have a few takeaways. Yeah, okay, I can talk about this at the water cooler with a buddy or over beers with a buddy. You're going to have those little bits of insight that are going to make a difference in your everyday life. You know, I don't care who you are, but I think really what it comes down to is as human beings, we're lazy. Totally. And when we first get introduced to a new idea, a new concept, something that's interesting, we're not going to put time into a 2,000-word article. No, and there are a few people that will put time into it. And again, that's yeah, where... Yeah, but a few, man. A few. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's where the, the trusted sources aspect comes in, right? Okay. Which is like, if, um, if, one of, if uh, Wall Street Journal has a... 3,000 word article on whatever topic and you really trust the Wall Street Journal as a source of information, you'll invest your time. You'll invest your time to be like, okay, they're talking about this industry that I care about. I'm going to read that 3,000 word thing. I think that media is changing and I think that most people aren't on that same boat anymore and and people are going to gravitate to what's easiest. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think that there is a time and place for that kind of stuff, but I think for most people that the three-minute infographic that explains that technology is going to win out. Hmm. Now, the question of a one-year engagement and the work you do, as we've discussed, what's ticket price on this? How does that look? Yeah, so our normal ticket price in terms of working with a small cap or mid cap type company that's looking to get that um, investor exposure, it's going to be somewhere between um, $60,000 and $100,000. That includes all aspects of what we create, obviously. That includes all of the media um, publication and, and blast through our email list and social media and all that type of stuff. It also allows them to get access to those assets so that they can use them in other places. That is one sort of two birds with one stone you know, idea that we found is pretty useful is that a company can take all the assets that we've created and then they can leverage them in other places where they need them, like for example, their website or their deck or other places like that. In addition there, we'll, based on our new sort of base package that we've put together, we're going to guarantee the amount of views that you get on a company spotlight page. And so in the case that a company is not getting enough views, we're going to find certain ways within our reach, within our uh, platform to drive more traffic to it and get more uh, people to look at that company page. And um, yeah, there's other elements to it as well. But generally speaking, it's we feel that that package is sort of enough to uh, to really get a company out into the uh, into the narrative. I, I'm going to cut in here because at first when I hear sixty to a hundred thousand bucks. I'm like, that's a big bite. But I'm I'm sitting here and I'm doing the math when I'm backing things out and I'm thinking one, talented design, uh, talented designers they don't come cheap. You know, I've got a guy, uh, a friend who's got an agency and they do some some big work and he's like, my cheapest outsourced uh, guys, he's eighty five US an hour. That's his cheapest freelancer for doing design work. So okay. Um, the next is actually being able to take a narrative and, and, and visualize it in a way 
which like you're saying, or what I hear you say, there's no real formula, but you guys do it. That sounds like brain damage from my side, especially if I got a, a company to run. Uh, and then the other piece of actually accessing an audience when, and I'm breaking this down to like, you know, I'm even thinking 10 grand a month with everything else I've looked at. And, and I, <laughs> I don't want this to come across as like, like a sponsored piece here. But when I look at the work I've done with other companies and the money we're dropping on other avenues, it doesn't really, it's not a lot of money comparatively. In, in one case, I know of a company that dropped some big bucks for a single article and the data coming back was abysmal from the engagement they can't. Um, and so no names there, but I, 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 when I'm quantifying this against the experiences I've had and for that, I see where you're coming from on, on, on the value piece. Yeah, it's, it's a bit tough to, to compare apples to apples because I, I think that people always think of it a little bit differently just because we use a different type of medium than other people use um, just by nature of using visuals. It's different from sort of everything else that's out there. And so people don't even think of equating us with other companies that do the other media companies within that same space, within that same consideration set. Um, so that's the first thing that people need to get past, I think, is that, um, you know, views are views and exposure is exposure. And um, whether you're doing that through an article or an infographic, if, if your article is only reaching 2,000 people, but the infographic is reaching 50,000 people and they have the same content, what, what is of higher value? Yeah. And for me, it's, that is a no-brainer, but it's sometimes hard to um, convey that because people will think, oh, both of them just have one piece that is distributed and they're of equal value because they're a page on the internet that people go to, that some people are going to. Yeah. And people don't actually dig deep and say, what is the actual value of something? They don't look at the, the cost per view or any of these like basic metrics, um, conversion or any of these really basic metrics. Let's talk about that. Let's talk measurement. If I sign up for you or sign up with you, and let's say we're going to do gold's topical right now, among many things, I'm a gold company and I'm getting my narrative out there. What kind of measurements can I expect for that money? So basically, we're, we're going to mainly focus on views, time on page of various pages, um, leads collected, obviously, and given back to the company. Uh, we're going to look at syndication. So when we publish something, where does it end up outside of our site? And so various sites like um, Zero Hedge might pick it up or you know, it might be featured on... Uh, we've had stuff featured on pretty much everywhere. So, um, you know, from Forbes to CNBC to, you know, basically any major media site that you can think of. So that's, a, that's an interesting one. Sorry to digress here, but that you guys, unlike a lot of these other channels or these other uh, media properties, they kind of have their, their sandbox and they're like, this is our sandbox. You, you know, we've got our investors and they're, they're playing in the sandbox, but we don't go beyond that. They don't, ex they don't push their content or push anything beyond that is the way I see it. And maybe I'm wrong for some of them, but you guys go out there and say, we don't have a sandbox. We just, we let everybody use it. And that's what you're saying by syndication. Yeah, exactly. So we allow anybody to use our content, no matter for what purpose, even commercial purposes a lot of the time. And so we have everybody, everybody uses our content. Yeah, yeah. So all of those sites aforementioned use it. 
World Economic Forum uses it all the time, Business Insider, all these bigger uh, media sites. Because for them, they can literally copy and paste what we've written and run it as an article. And it takes no time for them to do, but it drives traffic to their site. And so for them, it's beneficial. For our clients, it's also beneficial. So if I was a client, basically, I'm getting that benefit as well. Exactly. Because I'm tied to the piece you've put forward. Yeah. In the piece that you're mentioned, or in the piece that is connected to you, we are linking to your website. We are putting your logo on it, et cetera. And most of these major media outlets don't have an issue with that as long as the quality, the content is quality and that it follows uh, proper editorial principles and things like that, which is another factor there, I think, as well. I I think that from the get-go, we've always made our content so that it's designed to be shared among even other major media so that they the, like journalists are very critical right they will look at something and be like oh this is biased or oh this is using a stupid uh source or whatever yeah and the way that we set it up is we're like you know what? we're gonna we're gonna make it so that even the wall street journal could run this and they are not going to um, they will be concerned it about it right okay um that they can look at it and verify that the information is correct they're not going to find a typo in there they're not going to find um uh data point that's incorrect or uses a wrong source. Um, we want to make it as uh, journalistically appropriate as possible. And if we gain their trust, then they're going to use our stuff all the time, which gets our stuff in front of an even larger audience, obviously. With all of this work, you invest this money, what you're getting out of that. I mean, what this is, is it's part of a marketing campaign, part of a larger marketing campaign. And let's discuss that after this. But I want to ask, what are the companies, what have you seen companies do well when they get those leads from you? What kind of work do they do then? I mean, that's great. You get a lead, then what? Yeah, that's, I, I mean, that's an area where I think that there could be a lot of improvement. So some companies, all they do is they're just going to add it to their in-house mailing list, right? So the next time they have a news blast go out, they're just going to send an email blast to that person. That is the laziest and poorest way of doing it, obviously. But you'd be surprised how many companies actually do it that way. Um, What you really need to do, I mean, first of all, you need to reach out personally and contact this, this group or this group of new leads that came in and say, hey, we know that you found us through Visual Capitalist. You know, we really appreciate you wanting to get more information. And then, like, if, if it were me that were putting it together, I would put together, like, basically a fact of, like, uh, like a frequently asked questions of, like... I was going to get... What was yeah, that word? Okay. Yes. But, like, <laughs> what are what is interesting about this company and, and how can I answer all those questions right away? Because if you're a new person that's looking at a company, you're going to go to the website and you're going to have questions, right? If you're, if you're an actual investor that wants to potentially look at an opportunity, you're going to have questions. And so what I would do is I'd try and get all those out of the way right away. So I'd be like, you know, gold to your example, for example, like what you're talking about. You're in this particular... Uh, country or province. What uh, what is the environment like there? What is the legislative environment like there? What is like can companies even get projects through there? You'd have a link to somewhere that explains that. Your deposit is at such and such stage. What does that mean? You would answer that question. You would. What are the next steps? How are you going to generate value? I would just try and like lay it out there and. Um, maybe that's the first email, maybe that's the second email, but I would try and engage people and try and a- try and get them so that they can understand what's going on with this company um, before they dive even deeper. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So that's, we use Visual Capitalist. We're 
getting a broader message out there. It's coming into a home base, which is ultimately talking about the company and the opportunity and in the visual capitalist style. And that kicks out leads for us as part of a larger marketing campaign, because I mean, we can't just put all our eggs in one basket in the sense that hoping that all of our investor engagement is going to come from this. So other companies, I mean, they're doing road shows, they're doing, uh, they're doing investor conferences, they're doing uh, meet and greets, like, you know, on and on and on. There's all these things that uh, public companies have to do to, to maintain a, a market for their stock. How does visual capitalists fit into those other components? That's a great question. So what I love about the stuff that we do is it can be leveraged across all of those different avenues. So if you're, for example, uh, you, you have a booth at a show, use our visual assets to create a really cool vo- booth, right? Uh, we've already done all of the work, so why not leverage those assets? I mean, it'll only take us maybe you know an hour or two. We can take them and put them together and turn them into a really cool booth, but use it at your booth. Like create, create banners, which people can walk through an infographic story. Totally, you could do that. Yeah. Um, or if you're another media website um, and you're talking about the company's story, for example, like use our use our content or the company spotlight page as a link that people can get to to get the full story in sort of the easiest terms, right? Like provide that to the other people that you are advertising or working with and use that as a way or even post it on their page. Like we don't care. Um, leverage our assets that we've created and, and put them in those other places. We work very friendly with all the other uh, media companies in the ecosystem and they're welcome to use our stuff whenever they want and however they want. You know, we want them to um, to get their investors that are accessing this information to get those same insights that they're getting from from our site. And then in terms of like roadshows and things like that, like leverage our visuals in the presentations that you're giving, right? Um, it doesn't have to be the full deck. It might just be one or two slides where you're trying to create that aha moment for people where, where you're really trying to say, okay, before we get into our company, let's look at something that's more educational or contextual about the company. And maybe you can use one of our visualizations as that slide that kind of kicks things off and gets people thinking and gets people's brains running and they start actually thinking about this critically. Hmm. Okay. Now, tell me about a company that's engaged you, but it, it, it went terribly wrong. What happened? Oh man, that's a great question. Uh, so typically, the, this is a scenario that happens sometimes. I think the biggest thing that can go wrong is a company is expecting to uh, to get something out of us that we are not delivering, basically, which is a very you know simple way to put it. But they're they're looking for something that one of the big problems that we have is like from an editorial perspective, everyone always wants to be highlighted and um, showcased, right? But from an editorial perspective, you can't really do that. The best editorials are objective and independent and explain the issues and, and explain the context around an issue so that you can learn about it and be educated about uh, those various trends. And we have clients all the time that want to insert themselves into those narratives. And that's what they think that they've signed up for sometimes. And so we have to basically just shut them down and say, you know, we can't distribute this to our audience because our audience uh, values what we're saying. And we can't just insert a client directly into a narrative like that, unless if it's objectively and independently true. That said, there are companies that are 
objectively and independently interesting, right? So if you're the company first company to do something very significant, then that you know puts you in that framework. The problem is that 99.9% of companies are not they're not groundbreaking in that kind of way. Hmm. What I'm hearing is that expectation. Right. So in the company spotlight, you're expecting to be highlighted, right? But that's also going to be the least viewed thing in a package, right? Because it's it's promotional, it's about a company, which is a very narrow, it's a very narrow consideration set for the people that are viewing things. It's more like when we're talking about, uh, back to a, a gold example, right? If we're talking about a particular region and we say, um, let's talk about the golden triangle in BC, they want to be inserted into as a company that is interesting mm. in the golden triangle in BC. It's like, well, are, like objectively and independently speaking, are they interesting? No, they're just, they have some, you know. They, they've got a deposit there. Right. And But there's many more other interesting things. So we can highlight everything going on in the triangle or we can hang, highlight nothing going on in the triangle. But singling on in on one company because they think that they're, they're special, um, that's not uh, something that we can do. Hmm. So what am I paying you guys for then? So the the most important aspect is um, educating about that, for example, the golden triangle in the first place. Why is that relevant? Why does it matter? Um, why why are investors rushing to invest in companies that are based there? And once you create that information and that education, you get people up to speed as to what's actually happening there. Or maybe you look at um, at gold and you look at uh, the gold price, where it is historically, and like, does it have room to run? Is it going to grow? Is it is it something that has potential? What are what are the all-in costs of mining right now? What is supply like right now? When you add in all these other factors together, and you educate people about what's going on in a particular space, you've now created the the background story for a company that we highlight to uh, to now stand out, right? So if someone if an investor inherently knows all of this stuff and they know all this information, they're convinced of this story. And now we say, hey, here's a company that's in the Golden Triangle. You can learn all about them in under three minutes if you browse through this company spotlight. And if you want to learn more, here's a little form that you can fill out in one second that here's will your link to get you more information. And so it's, it's about um, providing that education, access to the audience, and once the audience has been educated, it's about converting them into a potential investor lead. Okay, I gotcha. I gotcha. Now we've talked a lot about investors, but I would I'm thinking I would also want to use this for for customer stuff. And I would imagine that that in working with you, I can frame these things up to help speak to provide information that would speak to a customer audience as well. Because I mean, beyond your audience, I would want to take the the visual assets and Give them to the sales team. Is that something you get, you've seen other clients do and have they done it well? Yeah, so that gets leveraged all, our stuff gets leveraged all the time to other audiences outside of just an investor audience. So um, a bunch of apps have used our stuff to build their user base. And, you know, often those, um, those user bases are relating back to finance and investing and business and things like that because that's obviously what our audience is on our site for. Um, that's the... The connective tissue of uh, between us and our audience, right? It's always financial and economy and investment issues. So, if I, if I'm working with you and and you guys invest a bunch of time into putting together the visuals, do what? Can I work with you and say, hey, can we adjust this for this custom use here for my sales channel, or in that package, can I actually get the raw files, the 
the the the Photoshop files and things like that to to have my designer repurpose. What do you guys do there? So we can do both. In our base package, we have a certain allotment of hours that are going towards being able to customize things for you. Oh, nice. Um, okay. And then in addition to that, we can also just send you the files. And if you have a competent person that can use it and leverage it, leverage it and uh, and use it however you, however you please. Oh, beautiful. Okay, sweet. Well, that's. I think I think I've gotten the questions that. Well, I've had in my mind, and that I've also talked with past clients about, and the work you're doing there. So, um, you know, thanks for shedding a bit of light on that, because unless I go and phone up one of your sales guys or sales ladies or sales persons to be PC, I'm not going to get those answers. So, yeah, you've given some some definite some context to it, for sure. Let's change gears here, man. I I've always been a fan of you guys. Where do you see your company going? Where where's Visual Capitalist going? What's what's next for you? So up until now, it's all been about building our audience and building the size and scale of our audience. Because from our perspective, the way that we scale our revenue is we reach more and more people. So whether you reach a million people or two million people or four million people or eight million people, that makes a difference in terms of what we can bring in, in terms of our revenue and growth. Um, that's one of the factors that media companies have to scale in that way. We've hit a point that you know we're pretty comfortable with right now, and obviously we're gonna continue growing that side of things, but right now we're starting to focus on some other um, aspects of, of how we want to build our company. And it's really interesting because we're trying to figure out what aspects fit best with our vision and mission. And our vision and mission are to take the world's uh, very complex information and to simplify it using visuals to make it easier to understand for investors and business people. So how do we do that aside from the media portion of our site? So one aspect of it I think that's really important is teaching others. So it's the uh, teach a person to fish versus you know catching the fish for them um, kind of thing. And I think that it even goes back to one of the things that we talked about earlier, which is like, if you're a company and you're trying to do this, how do you do it the best? And so we're going to educate people on our process. We're going to tell them how we think about this. We're going to go through the different steps of how do we make these decisions? How do we choose a particular set of data to work with? How do we choose a visualization to execute on? How do we actually execute on that? What are the tips and tricks that we use to do that? How do we simplify messaging? How do we simplify copy? All these different things that we do. Um, we want to educate other people on how best to do that. And so how we're going to start with that is we're going to, uh, we're going to develop a four-part webinar series. And the webinar series is going, the first part of it is going to be free, so anybody can access it. The other three parts will be uh, paid to access. And those other three parts are going to dive really deep into our process and, and help explain it for anybody that wants to know. And that way, if, if someone wants to implement our principles and our methodology on how we do things, but not leverage us as a, as a product or a company, then they can go ahead and, and find out how to do that. Because that is one of the questions that we get most often, which is like, how do you actually do the stuff that you do? And how do we figure it out ourselves? Um, what's in it for us uh, with something like that? Well, basically, the way that we work with a lot of bigger enterprise companies um, is we consult with them. So. Um, some of the larger asset managers in the world. You, and know, you haven't even dropped any of those names yet. And I'm going to, in the intro, 
wish That's fair. the listeners will hear, but give us some of those. I mean, they're, they're, those are, those are huge shingles to be hanging. Yeah. So on the investment side, um, companies that, um, are really involved, um, in asset management, in developing these kind of products, they found that the visuals really help them explain our products to not only to their end users, but to uh, financial advisors and people that are sort of in the middle between them and maybe end retail investors. But well, but some of these names, I mean, sure. Come uh, on. <laughs> so um, you're too humble. Yeah. So the big name that that we um, are working a lot with nowadays is BlackRock, uh, which is they're the world's largest asset manager. Um, we also work with companies like um, New York Life Investments. New York Life is a Fortune 100 company um, out of New York. Um, they're a 170 years old insurance company, but we work with their um, their investment side. Um, we work with um, Fidelity, um, Fidelity Canada mainly, um, and we also work with uh, some of the bigger uh, consultancies, so uh, McKinsey and Company, um, and uh, and and some other people in, in that kind of space as well. Nice. And Tony Robbins as well, which I thought oh, yeah. was, in, yeah, Tony Robbins. was a really interesting And actually, one. it's interesting because Tony Robbins is not on sort of the motivational speaking side of things, which is kind of what he's known for, but more on the um, investment side of things. In the last five years, he's sort of pivoted to personal finance as a sort of a pet area where he thinks he can make a really big impact on helping sort of the average person uh, figure out the investing world. Because I think that there are a bunch of things in the investing world that are sort of stacked against the average investor that they don't know about. And he's done a pretty good job of shining some of the light on some of those things. So uh, so good for him. And we were happy to work with them. Hmm. That's awesome, man. That's I've admired the company you've built here. Like you said, you, you didn't see this coming. And here you are working with some some incredible names. Yeah, it's definitely a bit of the imposter syndrome kind of thing going on because, you know, we know the quality of our work and we, we know the the visuals that we create and, you know, it's hard to compare them to some of the other things out there. But that said, when you're working with Tony Robbins or you're working with the world's largest asset manager, it creates a, a an interesting scenario because you have to, um, you're now, they're now relying on you to uh, do something important for them and you're like okay well we have a team of you know 20 people and <laughs> you know we're a tiny tiny fraction the size of you so um so how do we make this work but you know we're we're happy to be in that position and we're gradually getting over our, our, the imposter syndrome and that's why the thought leadership stuff is interesting right now we're at the point where we think that we can actually share our secrets with the world and not be afraid of it we want to really dive into like how can small companies, big companies, individuals, uh, nonprofits, how can all these different types of organizations, governments, how can they leverage visuals to communicate with their stakeholders, with their audience better? And that's not, it's not about us. It's about actually making sure that they are able to take the principles that we've discovered or found or invented or wherever we got some of them from, being able to teach that to other people so that they can use them and make their stuff a little bit better. Hmm. Something else you said earlier, which I wanted to ask a question on, but I didn't get the chance, was talking about journalistic principles. So what are journalistic principles? And what are they in your your view? So I won't speak to them at the abstract or like really like the the typical journalistic perspective, but I'll I'll, I'll speak to them from our perspective, which is basically 
if you're creating any article, any set of information, in our case, an infographic, a data visualization, uh, a set of charts or something like that, our goal is to make sure that you look at it and you do not see which way it's leaning. Um, so there shouldn't be a left bias. There shouldn't be a right bias. There shouldn't be a bias towards a particular um, style of investing or something, unless if it's like covered at the very forefront. Like this is, if this is an article about value investing, mm, then we're going to be right. leaning towards value investing. But so it's about, it's about looking at these different, the things that you could go into in an article and cutting out anything that you think is uh, either misleading it's not something that's could be construed as um, independent or objective. Uh, you're really uh, paying attention to the data that you're using. You're explaining the methodology behind that data. That's one thing that I think um, a lot of other groups miss. We try and say, okay, this is how the researchers did this, and they chose these variables for these reasons, and uh, they use the sample size of X, Y, Z. So we're trying to go into this stuff because we think it's relevant so that the end person can actually know those things rather than just hearing a headline and running with it and assuming that that's true. Uh, so yeah, we're trying to go into all these different factors and to really make it as objective as possible. And, uh, and I totally think that objective is a impossible, impossible thing to reach. Everything ends up being naturally subjective. But... Um, by staying driven by data and using data to tell the story rather than infusing your own narratives into things, I think that's the way that we can do the best job of that possible. And that's where other news sources can go wrong, in my opinion, which is that they will apply their lens to the world and they will talk about the data through that lens. And data can be interpreted in different ways, right? So we try and interpret it in like no ways. We try and just say, here's the data, Hopefully you learn something and have a good day. Uh, other groups will be like, here's the data and this is why it means left-wing thing. Right. Or this is why it means right-wing <laughs> thing. And so it's really interesting to because I, I watch other media very closely. And uh, and some of, the, some of those people would say that that's still in line with their journalistic principles. And that's fine because that's how they see the world. Um, but for us, we try and remain really neutral about things. And we try and just say, hey... Again, this isn't us saying this. This is, you know, the World Bank is saying X, Y, Z, or United Nations is saying thirteen uh, percent of this country is whatever. So we're looking at it uh, and trying to be as as matter of fact as possible, and that will allow smart people to guide their decision making. Hmm. Hmm. I, I want to jump back to another question. You guys have got over a hundred thousand active email subscribers, like daily email subscribers. That's a phenomenal number. I think anybody, any company, any person, any anybody in the world of of engaging an audience would love to have that. What's next? And have you ever looked and gone, damn it, how are we going to get to that next level? Well, I think, first of all, I think 100,000 is just the beginning. Um, we're adding about 1,000 people per week, if not more, to our email list. So um, hopefully we're able to scale that and get to 200,000 soon and 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 above and beyond. So we are we we think we can get to five hundred thousand or a million people per day um, on our daily list. So how we get past one hundred thousand uh, daily active male subscribers is right now we publish one thing per day, which is 
fine. And it takes a lot of work to publish that one thing per day because these things are very complex and, they're very, and they require a lot of data, a lot of uh, design work into them. But what we want to do is we want to we want to publish more things per day. We want to publish things in real time, things that correspond with the news cycle now. What what are people talking about right now? What is the relevant news? For example, if the Fed makes a decision, what is a visualization of that decision? How do we show that? And that's going to be really hard, but it's also going to be the next step because to truly help the world understand what's going on in the business and investing world, you know, we can't just do one thing per day on like right now we have to choose pretty general topics too, because um, as soon as you choose a niche topic, that's the only thing you're putting out for the day. So if you choose yeah. something very niche, that's all you got. Yeah. Um, what I would like to do is I would like to put out five things a day, a couple of them more general, broader topics, and a couple of them more niche so that we can really dive into some of these really interesting, you know, sub topics and, and things within the, within the larger industries that we usually talk about. And I think once we are able to build that expertise in all of these, um, you know, little areas as well, and to be publishing multiple things per day, I think that that increases the potential that we have of of building and expanding that audience beyond what we're currently expanding it at. There's got to be a, a discussion within the team in the office there about how do you get technology to help you do that? H- has that happened? What's that look like? For us so far, we haven't seen a lot of those tools being super useful. The reason for that is because f- most of the work that goes into our stuff that we create, I think, comes up front. So for us, it's about thinking about the issue. It's about how do we best portray this? How, what are the what is the audience? Uh, what are they going to get out of it? What's the potential insight that they're getting out of it? When you factor all these things into consideration, um, being able to, I mean, unless AI can do that, of course, right? Unless AI can figure out exactly what the audience wants and what that new insight is, for now, it's still a human thing that we have to figure out. We have to sit around with our editorial group and be like, okay, I want to do something on this particular topic. Do we think this is interesting or do we think this is dumb? And then people will talk about it and, and shoot the shit on it and say, yeah, I could see it working if we took this angle to it and then it would explain, you know, this kind of thing. So there's so much work that goes up front that I'm not sure how that would happen yet. And I think that's the same for quality journalism otherwise too. Reporting news as it happens, like re- reporting real-time things that happen, I think that AI can come in there and, and say, okay, well, we found out that, um, you know, this company's stock uh, reached 100 bucks, and, you know, here are some of the factors that led to that. I think that could be done through AI because you'd be able to parse that information and figure it out. But for us, it's all about like what do people want to share? What did they get insight from? Um, what can the visuals help teach someone? And for that, we haven't found an AI solution yet. It's just old, good old like a team shooting the shit and trying to figure out what's yeah, going to yeah, work yeah. And, and applying yeah. past lessons that we have that we think work and, and things like that. So yeah. I, I can picture the the boardroom of sorts of like like that creative energy which i don't think a, comp- a computer can replicate at this point but there's there's tension there's there's argument there's dialogue that goes back and forth to to create some of the work you do and and at this point at least the computer is not going to be able to generate that yeah and, and you know we'll see what happens in 10 years right but for now it's um and for most journalism um 
there's talk about AI and and automation coming in in certain parts of it, but I'm not sure how at scale you can create those kinds of insights that are going to be new to people and interesting to people, um, and you're willing to bet your brand on it, right? Um, the New York Times is not going to all of a sudden be like, hey. Uh, we've switched to AI, and hopefully everybody respects the New York Times just as much. Like, how are you going to break stories? And like, how you know, you need investigative journalism to do that. Yeah. And on our end, you need sort of um, it's not investigative journalism, but it's we we look at the world through um, a specific lens that is not something that I think can be portrayed with algorithms or anything like that. Mm. Um, the way that we ask questions about the world and the way that we look at it through and the way that we determine. Um, what visual components are going to resonate with people? Um, so for those reasons, you know that's kind of where we 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 are right now. But ah, awesome, man! I mean, it's it's uh, it's an interesting one, and it's a, I like it because when you think we we get so far into the world of technology is going to do this for us, it's going to do that, it's going to do that. But what I'm hearing and what I'm visualizing with you guys is that you can't replace that that team pushing forward with a set of standards that you have and that human dialogue to create what you create. I mean, really, that's I think that an algorithm has a very hard time of being creative. And that's what you're bringing to the table. Yeah, and when you look at um, AI and automation in general, and you look at the jobs that are expected to be replaced through or, or displaced through AI and automation, they're, they're talking about the different factors that um, that humans can, the types of skills that humans can have to avoid being uh, displaced by AI. And creativity is one of those big factors, right? Algorithms can do a lot of things. They can even sort of simulate creativity in ways, right? But they can't yet completely replace it in terms of coming up with new things and the things that creativity allows you to do. It doesn't, they're not able to innovate in the same way or to um, ideate in a way and test the sort of those ideas in a way that uh, allow that we were able to. And, and so creativity is a huge um, advantage that humans have over machines at this point. And there's other, other ones as well out there, but um, uh, that's certainly one of the biggest ones. Hmm. You know, sitting down in person has been, it's been awesome. It's been, uh, I've enjoyed the fact that we got to do this, but in wrapping up our conversation, thinking about the CEOs, the management teams, and, and those who are looking to engage an investor audience, aside from writing you a check, what can they do? What kind of final advice do you have? So a check is always plan A, but plan B, if you want a resource that covers all of the things that we look at in terms of how we approach this topic and, and how we think about uh, reaching an investor audience and uh, doing it the most in the most effective way. We've actually created a blog post on our website, which, um, which hopefully you can link to in the show notes. Um, it's called The Nine Big Mistakes That Public Companies Make With Investor Outreach. So it's not something that... Um, is uh, super promotional of our stuff. Instead, it's just the things that we've learned over, uh, we've created 1,500 different infographics and pieces of content and distributed them to an investor audience. Uh, we've seen what they like, we've seen what they don't like. We've worked with many different companies ranging from the smallest companies in the world to some of the biggest. We've seen the mistakes and the things that they've done over that period of time and and what um, what resonates with investors and what doesn't. And I think that that, uh, that list 
Um, it's a pretty long article, but it showcases some of the biggest lessons that we've learned. And hopefully people can apply some of those lessons to their own investor outreach programs or even their uh, company in general. Um, it's things like, you know, looking at how to create value for an audience rather than talking about yourself. It's things about um, how to create context and how to allow people to understand, like frame an issue and educate people about that wider issue. It's mistakes that people make when they're working with other suppliers. So things like um, building a piece of content and expecting an audience to just arrive at it and uh, not having a proper distribution plan. It's about measuring ROI and how to get the most out of the uh, the ROI that you're uh, of any program that you're developing and how to think about it in terms of what goals to set, how to measure them, and are they creating value? Um, so it's all these different uh, factors that we've learned over time and hopefully other people can use. Nice. Actually, I read that before and shared it out with a few people and the, the remarks they had coming back were, this is exactly the stuff that we've been talking about. This is the, These are the problems we're running into. So I'll definitely put that in the show notes. Um, and uh, yeah, otherwise, thanks a lot, man. This has been a lot of fun. You've got an awesome company and, and thanks for the insights. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.